Welcome to Leading in a Climate-Changed World from Olivia Mythodrama. This episode sees Robin talk to Sir Michael Barber, educationist and founder and chairman of Delivery Associates, an advisory firm focused on working with governments and other organisations to help them deliver improved outcomes for citizens. The focus of this discussion is very much based on leadership from governments around the issue of climate change, starting with the question about why it's taken so long for them to begin to take it seriously. Robin and Michael focus on influential leadership and discuss what the key levers are to help governments deliver on the promises they've made. They also talk about the role of civil disobedience and how it can play out when you look at the effect it's had historically. Is this the type of renegade leadership we should be encouraging? Do governments see the roles of Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg as irritations or motivations? They discuss the qualities of leaders that we need to balance the sense of urgency with the space and innovation to create solutions. They also consider how best to embody hope rather than despair. Find more of our podcasts on leadinginaclimatechangedworld.com or our parent website oliviamythodrama.com or search for Olivia Mythodrama wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy and over to Michael and Robin. Welcome everybody to this podcast in our series Leading in a Climate Changed World and it is a huge pleasure to welcome Sir Michael Barber to be with us today. Michael is a British educationist and founder and chair of Delivery Associates, an advisory firm focused on working with governments and other organizations to help them deliver improved outcomes for citizens. He's a global expert on implementation of large-scale system change, a leading authority on education systems and education reform, and he was knighted in 2005 for his contributions to improving government. Michael has worked for over 20 years in education and government reform and improvement. During that time, he has advised governments in over 60 countries on issues of public policy and delivery. He was the founder and first head of the Prime Minister's Delivery Unit in the UK under Prime Minister Tony Blair, and later served as Chief Education Advisor at Pearson and as a partner at McKinsey, where he was head of the global education practice. And he currently serves as chair of the Office for Students, the regulator for higher education in England. Michael has been a distinguished visiting fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he has published many books, the latest of which is How to Run a Government So That Citizens Benefit and Taxpayers Don't Go Crazy, which sounds like a really good idea. And welcome, Michael, to our podcast. Thank you very much, Robin. I'm looking forward to it. Um, As as I uh, um, uh, was thinking, it's a really great theme that you've chosen because so leadership in a climate change world is sorely needed, but it's also a, a theme that we're only at the beginning of exploring. We're like on the edge of the ocean looking at this vast uh, challenge ahead and working out what leadership does look like. So I think having a series of podcasts where you can explore the theme without necessarily nailing it down firmly is a really great idea and it'll provoke lots of interest. Right, and maybe we can pick up on your metaphor actually straight away because you say we're kind of at the edge of the ocean looking. And of course, for some people who have been swimming in this ocean for about 30 or 40 years. Yeah. We just had at a, a conference I was at recently, a man from Greenland saying, an elder from Greenland saying, I went to the United Nations in 1963 to tell them about climate change and that the ice was melting in Greenland. So why is it that you think governments have been not so interested, almost blindly looking away from this topic for so long? Yeah, I mean, well, I think this, that, that, that's a complicated question. And um, 
it, it, it came upon humanity uh, over, a period, uh, over a period of time. Um, and the first reaction often with some threat is denial or ignoring it completely. And then, and I think we've, we're probably coming to the end of the second phase now, then you get a phase where people say, well, yeah, there is a real problem here, but to realize how difficult it would be to make the change, so you get kind of incremental changes and there has been some progress and we can see that. Um, and now maybe we're getting to the third phase where you think actually denial isn't going to work, but nor is incremental change going to work. We need something, you uh, might call it a, a strategic rethink of how we do things. And it may be that that's where we are and that's why exploring the theme is, is good. But it's not unusual. I don't think there's anything particular about climate change, although I may be wrong, that has caused that you know, to, to take 30 or 40 years to get to where we've got to. I think that's, that's actually quite normal. It doesn't mean it's right, but I'm just, uh, as a kind of historical phenomenon, I think it's actually quite normal. I was interested, by the way, reading the um, Charles Moore biography of Margaret Thatcher, that she got the science very, very quickly. She was a she degree, in, degree in chemistry, uh, and that wasn't inevitable. And they began to talk about it in in the 1980s in government in a way that didn't happen everywhere in the world. So some people began to cotton on as scientists, but then you work out what it means for the economy, for society, for ethics, etc. And obviously it becomes a, a whole set of questions that are very, very challenging. Yeah, some would say that one of the reasons Margaret Thatcher was interested in it is because it possibly hastened the end of the coal industry, which she was just wanting to take on. But maybe that's a bit of a cynical voice to bring. Well, it certainly coincided with taking on the coal industry, which she would have done regardless of climate change anyway. So I don't think, I don't think it added to her determination to, to uh, uh, destroy the miners' union, if not the coal industry. But in fact, the two went together for her. Right, so how much now, like you work with a lot of governments around the world, how much now would you say climate change is, if not the central issue, at least one of the central issues? Because for many people, they would say this is the overarching number one priority. If we don't address this, we don't really have a planet on which we can do all the other things that we're talking about. Yeah. And by the way, to, so just a personal point, I, I, um, I think we, we also need, in, in the, under the climate change heading, to think about biodiversity as a, as a key theme. Um, pretty much on an equal footing, but that, that, that's a debate to be had. <clears throat> I, I, I think it's definitely on people's agenda uh, and people talk about it when there are uh, extreme weather events or as in Cape Town a year or two ago, uh, an extreme shortage of water where they, were thought, they, were, they thought the city was gonna run out of water within you know, uh, tens of you know, 30 or 40 days. Uh, so it was, it was all very imminent in those circumstances. Um, but a lot of the world and its governments are still focused on economic growth, ending poverty, uh, all big things, you know, universal healthcare, improved education, uh, roads, transport systems, etc. And there's a lot of thinking still like that. And, and the challenge is how do you bring these two together or can you bring them together or are they in tension? Um, for example, it's, it's not unusual right now for some African uh, countries with sometimes with Chinese backing to be building coal-fired power stations, which even the United States is now um, phasing out uh, and lots of the world has already done. So th 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 we're in a transitional phase where people are, governments are taking it seriously, but also um, often working in the old paradigm at the same time. And is that a luxury that we in civilization can, can afford? 
I mean, some oh. would say like the IPCC says we have maybe 10 to 12 years to do a radical turnaround. I mean, these are, these are debates we have, but look, I, I think one of the big breakthroughs in, uh, and the, uh, it's been a difficult time in international relations, but the Paris Accords were a big breakthrough um, and, and a, a very substantial achievement. But actually implementing the Paris Accords is a huge challenge. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a technical challenge. It's a operational challenge. It's a prioritization challenge. And it's a political challenge because you have to win the argument. Uh, so if you, uh, I, I've, um, as you know, spent time in dialogue with the Trudeau government in Canada. Um, and they've come up with a, a, a very good carbon, in, in my view, carbon pricing scheme where uh, the, the, what comes in from that will then get given back to uh, Canadians in tax credits so that the, 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 the most Canadians will actually benefit from it financially. It's, it's very well constructed, but they're in um, full political combat mode on that issue right now with the opposition who are saying it's a tax on, you know, all, of, all the things that, that get said. So even where you have a progressive government that has made climate change one of its top priorities, it's really difficult. And of course, that's a federal government and provinces control a lot of the issues. So, so the political, the politics of, of actually doing the right things is very tough all over the world. And I think the Trudeau government has done well. You see what's happened in the United States with the, the president retreating from the climate change accords, but Bloomberg philanthropies working with lots of American cities to try to meet the Paris Accords, regardless of where the president is. We're working with the Bloomberg philanthropies as their delivery partner with those 25 cities. So there's the, 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 this is contested territory. The, uh, you, you will interview other people who know more about the technology and all, all the other the, the technical issues and, the, and the, the, the science behind it, which is important, but it's not, it's not my area of expertise, but the politics of this is really tough. Right. And what your area of expertise is, is around what you call deliverology, like how do governments actually deliver on the policies and the promises that they make. So as you say, there's been a historic Paris Climate Agreement, 195 countries coming together and saying, yes, we will do these things to limit temperature rises to two degrees, possibly 1.5 degrees. And now when we look at the implementation, that is pretty poor, actually, currently. So as, as someone who's got their hands on the, on the levers of what helps governments deliver, I don't know, maybe this is too simple a question, but I'm wondering if you have like two or three or four things that you feel like these are real key levers to help governments deliver on the promises they've made. Just to correct you, I don't think I have my hands on the levers. I think I have my uh, ideas about how you put your hands on the levers if you have got your hands on the levers and then what you do. Um, if I had my hands on the levers for the whole of climate change, that would be a different thing altogether. But the... Um, but look, they, they, there are some things. So, so in, in, in American um, cities that we're working with, the things you need to do are have buildings that are more um, uh, intelligent in the, in the way, uh, about, the, the, about the way they use energy because you've got a lot of big high-rise American buildings. And actually high-rise buildings are, are in some ways easier to change than, than, than spread out suburbs like you might get in Sydney or, or, uh, or, or Auckland. But, there, but there's that, and then there's public transport, and then there's um, uh, 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 and all, all, all the emissions that go with those. And if you just take on those two things in a, in a rigorous way, you will make progress. Um, whether it's enough is, an, is, is another question, but you will. You, so there are some things you can do right away, get started on. And the key in, in deliverology uh, uh, is to set a goal, and then uh, in, in, in Paris's 
in the Paris Climate Change Accords, they're set for 2030. But you need to then break that down and say, well, what do we need to do by 2021 to make that real? Because otherwise everybody will leave it till 2027 and think, oh my God, we're not going to do it. So what should they be doing in 2020, 2021, 2022? Um, and then breaking it down by sector, maybe by suburb in a city or, or whatever it is, just breaking it down into things that you can see and feel and measure and then get them done. Um, and that, that's, the, that's the challenge. So we, we're working, I, I won't name the country, but we're, we're working with a relatively small island nation that um, climate change is a clear threat from uh, all kinds of ways, uh, rises in sea levels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they, 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 they don't um, have a climate change goal, but they do have an energy renewables goal. And I'm urging them to be more radical. I, I'm saying to them, actually, you could be the first you know, absolutely zero carbon place on the planet because people drive cars but they actually don't need to because mm-hmm. there's not that many places you can go um uh, you know I'm, I'm i'm slightly exaggerating so they could just do it they, everybody could have electric cars you could have zero carbon economy they're not quite there yet um, because they've got to bring people with them but they, they, these so i think you've got to turn it into measurable goals and and you know uh, that that's or similar time to the um it's actually just before paris the world signed up to the um development goals or the, the new the new um uh, development goals and some of those are really hard like I, I was looking at one um because we're in another country we we're helping them uh, with a small part of this which is to end hunger by 2030 mm-hmm. uh, and 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 malnutrition that's a that's a noble aspiration but it's a very difficult thing to do in 11 years and um it involves thinking about water about the way you use land about the uh, about the, the the crops and the crop yields, uh, land waste involves thinking about how you feed more than half the population of the world that lives in cities who don't grow their own food. Uh, so it involves transport systems, and the people who are thinking about that aren't necessarily thinking about that in line with climate change. In fact, to do if we're going to achieve the two, we've got to think about them together. And that integration of thinking is quite hard to bring about, and it's it's difficult for governments. Exactly. I was just thinking about as you said that, because, of course, one of the issues around climate change is also land use. So if you use your land to raise cattle, it's super inefficient and the cattle themselves create a lot of emissions. If you use the same amount of land to grow crops that can feed your local population, you'll be much more efficient in terms of climate change as well as feeding the population. So so the connecting up of those things is really critical, as you say. Yeah, it's true. And and, and, and actually, there there are some trends in the world that um, are kind of underlying all of this. One is we're moving towards 9 billion people on the planet by 2050. When you and I were born, it was two and a half billion people. Um, and now it's plus 7 billion plus. But so that, and then, and then the growth of um, more, a more wealthy middle-class across China and India, but, uh, but increasingly also across Africa and certainly Latin America long since uh, creates demand for different kinds of food, including eating more meat and all, all of these things which are associated with greater wealth. So that, that involves not just government change, but culture change, attitudinal change. And governments can play a part in that, but they need allies in business. They need allies in uh, social movements, allies in um, the leading religions of the world, um, all of which have a big impact on this. So it's, it, it's right that governments should think about this in a rigorous way, but it's wrong to think that governments alone are going to be able to solve these problems. Right. And I I'm, was I'm interested because I was just going to ask you about how they relate to these social movements like Extinction Rebellion, like the school strikes led by Greta Thunberg. 
like you have the ear of some governments, maybe you don't have hands on levers, but you have the ear of some governments, I think. And I'm just curious, like do, do governments see these as kind of irritations or real voices to listen to? Like maybe it's a bit of a generalized question, but what's the perception of government of these kind of social movements where there seem to be a lot of people on the streets that you have to do something about this? It's, 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 it's difficult. Um, I think that, that there's a tendency so, so in, in bureaucracy, government bureaucracies to um, think, in, not necessarily in a totally negative way, but to think about control and order. Um, and so, so, so things that threaten that do seem like a threat. Obviously, in some types of governments, those are, those are uh, very rigid and, uh, and, uh, and threatening to people. But, but, but order, in a general sense, is actually what most people want governments to provide. If you sort of go back to the political theory that um, you read some of when you're at university, um, and uh, they so so they do see that they see it as a bit of a threat. But interesting, I was interested that um, here in Britain, the the, um, the uh, Michael Gove, the the um, Secretary of State for the Environment, did meet the um, Extinction Extinction Rebellion people recently. Uh, they it sounded in the papers as though they weren't happy with that, but you wouldn't expect that. But at least he gave them time. Uh, to me, that is him taking it taking that seriously, at least recognizing the issues, if not necessarily recognizing the methods by which they were promoting them. Right. And there's this, there's a growing movement, it seems to me, like I think one of the demands now of, of some of the school strikers is to say maybe we need a general strike to kind of bring people to their, to their knees in a way to take climate change seriously. The role of civil disobedience in, in bringing about this kind of change, I mean, civil disobedience has brought about a lot of radical change over, over centuries. Is that one of the ways forward? Is that the kind of leadership that you would also feel is helpful at this time? I, I, um, it's a really good question. And actually, I've thought about it quite a lot because I read a fantastic biography of Gandhi in the first few months of 2019 by um, Ramachandra Gua, a very, very brilliant Indian historian. And the biography is completely wonderful. And you see how Gandhi uses um, civil disobedience um, uh, Satyagraya, as he calls it, and but, but also his his own uh, hunger strikes at different times to put things on the agenda in a way that um, can't be denied, but don't use any violent means. And that is, to me, that is what he did, and the way he did it is one of the great examples of leadership in the 20th century. And then you could come to Martin Luther King in the U.S. Um, from the Montgomery bus boycott through to his assassination. 1968 really remarkable ways of mobilizing people and one of the things i, I was thinking about in, in anticipation of this conversation is i think leadership in the climate change world needs to be about the what but also about the how so what, what do you what do you want to see different and how do you do it um, and how do you build relationships through that because there are so many threats in the world now with um you know, the, the risks of violence getting spinning out of control are incredibly threatening to not just to climate change but to humanity to to the to life on earth and so the the what and the how need to be thought about together um, and people will disagree about the what but if we could get some greater shared depth of, of how you go about changing that would be good and that would mean governments understanding how to respond to popular movements that use civil disobedience but 
whatever. I, I, I thought, commenting on the Extinction Rebellion, I, I thought they, they put the issue on the agenda well. I thought it was odd to be disrupting public transport, for example. I, I, you know, so so that, 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 might be, that might be a tactical question. Uh, but people, there was some response to climate change and, um, and the biodiversity being put on the agenda. Yeah, indeed there was. And maybe we could just go a bit deeper into this question of leadership. So you've spoken about leadership at different levels. The governments need to be in partnership with, with corporations, with civil society, with social media, with, with, with many different aspects of, our, of, of what make up society. And I'm wondering if you would share with us your thoughts about the type of leadership, maybe more abstract question, the way the type of qualities of leadership that we would need now to both balance this sense of urgency with a, with a possibility of innovation and the spaciousness we often need to cultivate innovation. Yeah. Uh, can I start by answering the opposite question? So I think there are some types of leadership really evident in the modern world that are the, the, the wrong way of going about this. Is it, is it okay if I just start and then come to, to, to the positive way you put it? The, the first, the first the, I, I think there are basically three big um, sort of leadership um, wrong paths are, are available at the moment that are being widely used. One is um, uh, populism of the right, uh, which we see plenty of around the world. Another is populism of the left. And what makes them both populist is they have a, um, um, a shallow analysis of what the problems are and very simplistic solutions that are nevertheless uh, put across with vigor and uh, make it make life seem you know get sorting these things out really simple and clear but they're not and they're they're dangerous uh, and both of those are, are are threats to you know all over the world and, and we could point to examples but the third one which gets less mentioned but i think is equally um uh, a problem is is what i call techno exuberance that somehow um these wonderful new technologies are going to solve everything and they're all very intuitive and aren't they marvelous and uh, and the companies that promote them uh, talk about how, how how wonderful they are, but they don't pay their taxes. They set up foundations uh, when you think actually maybe that money should have um, been paid in tax. And they, they argue they're doing wonderful things with their foundations, and sometimes they are doing wonderful things with their foundation. But it doesn't excuse you from paying your taxes, and the technology on its own doesn't solve all the problems. Plus, they're um, taking uh, data, including probably the data in, involved in this conversation now, and working out what it is that we think what they think we think we want in the future and then they're going to offer it to us now that i i find that a threat mm -hmm. like that so you've got so you've got uh, populism left populism right and techno exuberance and these are these are it's not that uh, uh, populism is 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 in my, in my view to be rejected the technology is important and part of the solution but the leadership of that and the ownership of technology what uh, ownership of the means of production in the old phrase is really important and what people do with that is really important because w we who are using the technology are not owning our own data mm -hmm. so there's, i think there's some those are so those are, just want to get those on the record as things that i think are threats although the technology um as we know could be really important in solving some of these problems on on what i think really good leadership is like first of all it um involves stewardship so whatever i'm doing i'm going to leave this organization better than i found it and its relations with the world around it better than i found it and so I'm, i might i might be 
a government department cutting crime, or it might be a business um, uh, sell, you know, selling whatever. Um, but I'm also going to make sure that we make a contribution to improving the the, the world. So that so I think stewardship is really fundamental to leadership in the future, and making the an active part of the way people think. Um, I think you've got to think long term, but at the same time, you've got to start doing now. So you've got to, you've got to have a long term strategy. You've got to get on with it, um, and not one or the other. Um, I always say to um, politicians I work with, you have to have a long term strategy, but unless you deliver short term results, no one will believe you. And, and I think that's true. It's also true for business leaders and um, charitable organisations and uh, head teachers of schools and all the rest of it. So that's important. And then the way you interact with people, every single individual you interact with as a leader, the way you build relationships is really fundamental. And um, I have tried to emphasize that in all my dialogue with uh, people in government. I think it was fundamental to the work we did on delivery in the Blair administration. Uh, in um, all the organization I work for, it's I try to encourage people to think about that and learn the, the um, principal bargaining and negotiating theory, uh, learn how you um, how you negotiate in a way that honors the other person. And I think in a, in, a, in a modern world where we all value diversity, but that includes diversity of opinion and views on what should be done. So we are going to have arguments. And in fact, we all think arguments are a good idea, but they have to be carried out in a particular way if they're not to end up in a downward spiral. And leadership can really influence that. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was just facilitating recently a, a conference on climate change and consciousness. And one of the questions was how much we're in a fight. Is it a fight against you know, the fossil fuel industry and the extractive mining? Is it a fight against? Or can we somehow build a bridge to what seems to be the other? So I wonder, so just building on what you're saying about, about how we are in relationship with each other, how do we also say no to things that we really want to oppose, but also stay connected? Yeah. And that that is is very very difficult. And uh, I think you I, I think that but that that I think you set the dilemma really well. And the, the I think it, it, the, I don't know if it's a good answer, but my answer to the question is you you say no in such a way that it's just not a rejection of the human being. It's a rejection of the thing that you are saying no to. Right. And that, um, as we see all around the world in politics, is not what's happening a lot of the time. Um, there's a lot of character assassination going on. You, you just see it on you see it on social media any day of the week. You see it in the you see it in the media. You see it in the way politicians are interacting, and I think that is that is a problem. Um, and I think you you do want leadership that can be vigorous in argument, um, but also not reject the whole the whole human being, but the just reject the, the thing that you're objecting to if you can. Right. So maybe. I agree. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to <clears throat> practice what, what we might call a connected no. Yeah. But maybe, maybe we could close with, with, maybe you could just give us a few examples of, of leadership you've encountered, maybe at different levels, that feel like they're embodying the type of qualities you're talking about. Um, Where are the best examples that you've come across on the planet? I think... So if I, if I let, let me let me speak about uh, about governments. I think um, I must say I think the Canadian government has managed climate change policy really well. They've they've really thought it through. They've been very uh, vigorous in advocating it. Uh, they've uh, they've thought through the policy and now they're 
taking it on um, and they th that's always been contested um, so I think uh, that has been good um, like any politician Justin Trudeau has had his challenges but I think the way he presents ideas and thoughts and the way he responds to people who come from a very diverse range of backgrounds is, is, uh, is very impressive and indeed the emphasis he puts on the value of diversity to Canada and the world so I've been I've been very impressed with him uh, uh, and then the, the other government that I've been impressed with very very different people are the government of New South Wales in Australia uh, the Premier there is called Gladys Berejiklian. She's just been re-elected. Um, they took on. Uh, she, she became Premier partway through her predecessor, and then she she picked up the same agenda. Have taken through some quite difficult social challenges and made progress on them. Where other governments are struggling, like childhood obesity, um, reducing domestic violence, um, as well as schools and uh, infrastructure and so on. Uh, and again, the the, the main. Um, critique of her, uh, as I read it, um, I, was, I was only following the election from afar, was, um, was that she was sort of too hardworking and single-minded uh, and uh, not very exciting. And I, you know, we, we, we I, I don't know if that, I, I, I found her very engaging and really focused on delivering stuff. Maybe that's just exactly the same thing, but she's just getting on with the job. Um, I've been impressed with, um, with the leadership in, Western Cape, a premier called Helen Ziller, who is just finishing. Uh, she won't be. She's not standing for election in the in the uh, elections that are pretty much now in South Africa. But she's done a fantastic job in um, leading progress in the Western Cape on um, schools and youth. But above all, she's done it all while being really clear about the importance of the rule of law, uh, open, diverse societies. Her background going right way back is um, the journalist that uncovered all the Steve Biko uh, in the death that, that you and I remember from when we were student um, students so she's been, she's been very very impressive she's a very very strong determined woman but um, but uh, overall uh, admirable and in, in what she's achieved as well as um, as well as the way she's gone about it. so they'd, they'd be they'd be they'd be three examples of people that I've seen um, in, in action um, and then um, in the island nation I mentioned, I won't touch, go into details, the, the leader there has been very, very determined to. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And maybe actually, as you were talking, I was just thinking we could wrap up with, a, with whatever you, you want to share about the nature of hope. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm quite struck at the moment, also coming out of this, this conference. We had a lot of young people there saying, we really need you as adults, as, a, as an older generation, to embody hope for us. You can't really tell us where well, we've trashed the planet and now it's all down to you and us. It all looks pretty terrible. Like We need you to embody hope. That's part of your responsibility now. And people talk about active hope and sacred hope. And, and, and so for one question is, are you hopeful? Um, and maybe you have a more philosophical take on what is, what is hope, really? And how do, we, how do we embrace hope without being in denial? Yeah, it's... I I do. I actually do think about this a lot, and, and certainly in my, in my university role that you mentioned at the beginning, for chairing the office for students, which represents, which regulates universities in in, in England. Um, I'm really keen that we're optimistic about what universities do, what they could do, uh, the role they're going to play, they do play, and will play in in the future of our country. Um, and uh, the way that 
the way I talk about hope, and I had this conversation with a group of students um, in Birmingham on Monday, is um, we've got the best educated generation of school students in the history of our country, which is a wonderful thing. And we've also got one of the best university systems on the planet. If you put those two things together, shouldn't we be able to do something fantastic? Um, and because the tendency is always to focus on the short term, oh my God, there's a funding review going on. Yes, there are some significant mental health problems on campuses. Uh, and yes, there are, uh, you know, th th these are troubled times in British politics. And it's easy to talk yourself into a downward spiral. So I think the, the young people are saying that to you are completely right. I think it is the job of uh, uh, our generation for hope. Having got to that point, one way to generate hope, and this is challenging, is to be really uh, honest with people about what you think the problems are, because that is the beginning of rebuilding. And so to, what you don't want is hope that is kind of naively papered or skates over the, the real problem. So there are some very, very significant problems facing humanity and leveling with people about that, being really honest about them, confronting the brutal facts is part of generating hope. And the challenge for leadership is how do you do that at the same time as really giving people a, a sense of optimism and that there's a great future ahead. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. I think we'll, we'll probably close here also to honor your, your time commitments also. So thank you so much, Michael, for, for sharing your experience and your wisdom with us today and for being a, such a great embodiment of hope. Like when I think about you and your work in the world, it feels like you carry a, a torch of, of optimism and possibility wherever you go. And thank you so much for that and wishing you every success going forward also. I, I, I appreciate that. And that, 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 that's very generous. I'll, I'll leave you with one thought that a young person said to me a few years ago. Um, he was in his early 20s at that point i said to him what do you think when you think about the 21st century he said i think the second half of it will be fantastic and then he paused and he said if we get it through if we get through the first half and i think that that point of there's a great potential future ahead but we do have to manage you know be, be clear about the problems now and then get on the management thank you very much for the time it's always a, a pleasure to talk to you robin and um uh, and uh, congratulations on taking this initiative because i think the podcast will be fantastic thank you michael Thank mm -hmm. you.